Welcome to Review 2 Dust Geoengineering. We have a different host today. My name is Robert Hoagland, a carbon removal analyst and advisor, writing a lot about the CDR space. And maybe some of you have heard me on this podcast before, stepping in and becoming the interviewer for today. And today we have Max Franks and Frank Venmans with us, and we're going to discuss two new papers, but they're both discussing the role of temporary and permanent carbon removal and carbon storage and the different considerations that goes into that. Can temporary storage be compared to, to permanent, for example? And I'll let you introduce yourselves and also the title of the paper and, and sort of a, a short summary of them. I'll start with you, Max, and then I'll, I'll go for, for Frank. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show again, and this time with a different host. I'm glad to meet you. My name is Max Franks. I'm working as a postdoc at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and at Technical University Berlin. My main research focus is climate policy. Right now, I'm working on a project related to policies for carbon dioxide removal. That's why we're here with this the specific paper. We've also released published another paper on CDR policies a few weeks ago. But the paper we're discussing today here from my site is called Pigou's Advice and Sisyphus's Warning, Carbon Pricing with Non-Permanent Carbon Dioxide Removal. And we set out to answer the question, what are good climate policies to incentivize the right amount of non-permanent CDR? Because it's unclear uh, a priori whether CDR that, that only stores carbon only for 10, 20, 50, 100 years, whether that has any value at all. What kind of benefit does that give if it leaks out again? And we find that it depends. <laughs> it depends on how much we value the future, how much we how much we discount future climate damages, how much we discount future economic costs of removing. We introduce a metric that is related to the social cost of carbon. So we introduce the social cost of carbon removal, which kind of makes the social costs of using non-permanent CDR somehow comparable with the social cost of carbon, which measures how severe climate damages are in monetary terms. And then we in this paper, we discuss three different types of carbon pricing regimes that policymakers could theoretically use. They have different implications for how much information the government has. Because one topic is, uh, can you monitor CD, non-permanent CDR project, for example? And there are certain risks actually with that. So the conclusion is that uh, under certain circumstances, it non-permanent CDR does have benefits and uh, a sensible way to incentivize that is with certain subsidies, although the subsidy for non-permanent CDR should not be as high as the Peguvian carbon tax that's set at the social cost of carbon, but a little bit below that because non-permanent CDR is just not as good as avoiding a ton of car emitted carbon that's avoided right now and doesn't ever enter the atmosphere. Mm. And just, uh, we'll go back to more detailed questions in your papers, but just for clarification now, so do you equate the value of temporary and permanent storage, or is it still dependent on that temporary storage being replaced in the future? In this case, it's an optimization model. So we are looking at the optimal outcome, the, op the pathway to the when everything is as it should be with the least economic costs to future to us and future generations, then the non-permanent storage that you use always has to be replaced. So that in the beginning, you can you can suck out a little bit more CO2 from the atmosphere. You effectively increase the the disposal space that we have for carbon in general. We have one additional sink, so to say, in addition to the atmosphere. But we have the only we do with non-permanent CDR, we have a leaky sink. Uh, and the carbon is released out of that, um, out of this storage space, and then continuously have to replace that in the future and uh, in the steady state. That's what we call the situation in the far future. The carbon that we remove from the atmosphere is exactly equal to the carbon that leaks out of the, this um, storage mm. space. All right. Yeah. But th that's quite different from, from just equating the value and saying that if we do more now, 
of the temporary it's, it's the same as the long term so it's a different type of consideration where you still yes yeah so frank your your paper social value of offsets right has a, yeah. a little bit different approach can you tell us wait what you're doing were you working and, and summarize the, the paper for us hi everybody i have a bit of a cold so my voice is a bit distorted i'm assistant professor at the london school of economics the main question in our paper is how do you value a temporary uh, project and so the answer is it will always be more than zero and it will never be the same value as a permanent storage project so in our stylized model the idea is you store a ton of carbon today let's say in a forest and then after some point maybe after 50 years the project ends stops being additional uh maybe there is a fire so 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 you had planted a forest and after 50 years it burns how do you value that and or in the baseline you assume the forest is being cut and now you protect the forest you do this for 50 years the forest is is effectively protected but after 50 years in your baseline the forest would have been replanted anyway and so we make this argument that if you think about several projects um it's quite difficult assumption that this additionality like the project is going to make a difference that that's an eternal claim so let's assume that after 50 years in the world without a project that people would replant the forest anyway because there is some productivity related to to trees then then after 50 years you're back to to having zero effect and that's the same formula so basically you're having a causal effect an additional effect for 50 years and then to stay with this logic of 50 years for example the value of a forest with where of, of this temporary storage over 50 year is more or less uh, 33, 40% of the value of a permanent storage. So, so we, we, we then conclude you should, instead of having to compensate one ton emitted by an airplane, for example, you should then store two or three tons in a forest to have the same welfare effect. Mm. And I can go a bit more in the detail on how we 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 we, we calculate this this equivalence between welfare effect, uh, and we think it is an interesting uh, tool because it would also allow you to make short shorter contracts. So the current logic in in the offsetting market is one where it is essentially an eternal contract. I'm going to put ton of carbon in the in the in this forest and mm. i trade one emission versus one ton in the forest so basically uh that is an eternal contract mm. because and that comes from uh, climate science so, so i've been working on, on on how economists understand the climate science so if you look at an emission think about our airplane or maybe your car so that one ton is added to the atmosphere Although the atmosphere, uh, no, let's say it differently, although the sea will absorb uh, this carbon over time, the temperature response is eternal. Yeah. So you get a rapid temperature response within five to 10 years. And then the temperature effect of this one ton is more than 10,000 years. Yeah. So, so, so let's say eternal in, in economic mm. terms. <clears throat> and so, uh, that is the effect of an emission. And if you think I'm going to then say I will do a permanent project, I put one ton in, 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 in geological stores or whatever, where it's really permanent, then you'll have also an eternal effect. Uh, and so if you want to trade one ton emitted versus one ton absorbed, you're basically, uh, you, you need a an eternal requirement. Yeah. Now, that is not observed in bond markets. Like people don't like eternal contracts it's also mm. not very solid so we say you could better than say let's make contracts of 50 years for example or, yeah. or less 50 years yeah. and then then you get sounder market but then you should then yeah. also compensate one limited ton with several tons in your forest and after yeah. 50 years you're you're done you're, 
your mm. your claim is over and you've com fully com compensated mm. oh, sure this is quite heavily dependent on them discounting the future damages or the future costs of this because otherwise if if the damages are not discounted then since the temperature effect is eternal then it would be impossible to equate short-term storage to, to long-term because they would be infinitely more harmful because it continues yeah. uh, infinitely unless of course the harm from warming would go down like that would be another aspect so if if, if you have very high yeah. levels of adaptation for example but maybe that's something you put into the discount rate to sort of make a justification for for your discount rate based on future relationship to how people are harmed or not harmed by temperature but maybe you can tell us a bit more about the discount rate and sort of what's your justification for the one that you choose in this paper and how you think about that yeah so um let me start by the social cost of carbon so how we as as economists if we make these integrated assessments how do we value the damage from one ton of carbon so this is going to be an eternal stream of damages we're going to warm the slightly the earth for eternity and so if you add up all these damages of course you're at the infinity then so so that is what happens when you do not when you 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 consider every pound of damage equally be it in the future or today now that's going to be a very easy optimized model that tells you like the cost of emitting is eternal and so whatever cost you can do to avoid emissions you should do them and you would then give up 50% of GDP, stop with all petrol tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Probably costs less than 50% of GDP, but that, that's a very mm -hmm. uh, easy one. Um, <clears throat> now, in, in economics, we always discount the future, and there are many narratives to this. Let me start with the ethical na narrative. 99% uh, of economists think that the future, in the future, people will be richer. And then the rich people care less about $1 than poor people. So that's the inequality aversion. And so if you are slightly, even slightly inequality averse, and you know the future is richer, they should be discounted. So for them, they can bear $1 of damage more easily because they, they are rich. And we are the poor generation. And so inequality averse, you become are you want to disc to larger rate and so then the social cost of carbon goes down that is an ethical parameter yeah. and we have disagreements on this but most people would economists would say the discount rate so the inequality version is not zero we do care about inequality so we should discount um, there is another element so another way of thinking about a discount rate is in terms of opportunity costs. So if I put $1 on the stock market now, I have $10 in 100 years. And so I can compensate somebody with $10 in 10 years. Therefore, $1 now is more than $1 at the end of the century, just because I have this alternative views of my, my cost, I can put it in other productive, invested in other productive uh, sectors of the society. It's not only private companies. The same is health in, health sector, agricultural, yeah. R&D, et cetera. So if I make a climate model with a very low discount rate that is lower than, than the, the rate at which the state can, can borrow, my model is internally coherent, but whenever there is an option to invest in another sector, another ministry than the climate ministry, welfare goes up. Mm. So that is to keep things in coherent within sectors. We, we apply a discount rate. In my case, it's 3%, something that is mm. after mm. inflation, a bit the cost of capital for... Yeah. I think what, what becomes very different and makes the discussion a bit harder is that some people view this as like, what should you do to be able to offset your emissions? Like if you have an emission of fossil carbon, when can you say you permanently remove that? So it's basically to say, if you have X tons of emissions, what should you do with, with them? And the other approach is if you have X amounts of dollars, what's the best way of maximizing welfare with that money? So it might be very different, different answers. So 
if you have a thousand tons that you emitted and you want to say that I've completely offset this, I'm carbon neutral, then from one point of view, and I would take that one, you basically have to permanently remove it or set up a scheme where you would replace it automatically in the future. Maybe you have a fund or something where you put the money aside for it to be replaced in the future. Whereas if you have a limited amount of money and you're just trying to maximize welfare, then a different type of approach would be would be used where you would look at sort of yeah similar to what you're doing do you think that's that's the way of describing it or because because you're still talking about offsets here and and sort of when you could say you have offset but for me it becomes like two different things so let me say the following like the approach in economics it's almost always a consequentialist approach so we look at outcomes and we we need a moral parameter, so this inequality version, uh, to, to make our model, to close the model, to, to make meaningful conversions from, from money towards uh, welfare. But so that is sometimes different than how people who want to offset their emission things, because they consider it as a moral obligation and, and, and they're in the, in some kind, yeah, in, in a slightly different world, like where, mm. where, where, I want to have zero effect on, on as, a, as a person on, on, on yeah. future generations. So um, that is compatible with our models. So if you if you think as a person, like how can I have a zero effect on future generations? Um, there is an option to use a temporary offset, and then once that offset ends, to do go for a next offsetting project that yeah. maybe then is uh, permanent or. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you can like make a portfolio of temporary offsets that that would do the same as a permanent offset, and that is then in our value function it will be yeah compatible with how we value offsets. Mm-hmm. So the, the short yeah to explain what what exactly how we calculate this, we say the social cost is this eternal stream of damages. That's the social cost of carbon foreign emission. If you have a permanent project yeah you avoid this cost so it's a eternal stream of advantages like avoid the damages and then if it's a temporary project it's just for as long as your project is alive you're avoiding these damages so it's a non-eternal stream of avoided damages mm. and that's always going to be better than zero uh, but it's never going to be as good as an eternal stream mm-hmm. Another way we show that it's compatible is to say, we, I have the social cost of carbon today. So let's consider my project. And for the climate, that would indeed exactly be the same as the sum of two projects. One that is permanent project from now onwards. I avoid, I store a ton of carbon forever. And then at year 50, I emit a ton with, I burn some fuel. And so the sum of these projects does the same for the climate as my temporary project in a forest. And so it's then the difference between the social cost of carbon today and the discounted social mm. cost of carbon in the future. That's not, and we show that both methods give you the same answer if you do a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, and uh, sorry for interrupting, but uh, so Max, feel free to jump in as well. I'm commenting on frank says and i think one thing for me becomes that if, if you do have this temporary storage and release it after 50 years for example you're not helping to reach a global climate target of, of keeping warming below 1.5 for example or if it's two degrees and you're not decreasing tail risk that comes with these kind of higher warming levels so um there is the risk of feedback loops etc and like at the higher temperatures have higher risks of, of having more climate damage than we think there's so there's a point of keeping temperatures as low as possible and if you do have on a very large scale temporary carbon removal and you use it to offset so you keep you actually choose this instead of reducing emissions then that all all else equal that will lead to higher temperatures than if you just avoided emissions or if you had permanent storage so even though you equate the welfare you would end up with a higher temperature and also increases risk quite a lot because you don't exactly know the climate sensitivity and there's a good really good argument to keep temperatures as low as possible maybe either of you max or, or frank if you want to comment on that so what our paper does is we pick one technology and we say well what does one this one non-permanent cdr technology add 
should should we uh, use afforestation in the future, or should we just simply uh, stop using it? But but we say, or result of our paper here is, uh, you can use it from a social perspective, and it gives added value um, to the economy. Only it this this one technology because of its impermanence does does not have does not influence our decision whether we should reach 1.5 1.6 2 degree target these long term climate goals they are independent from um, from the availability of non permanent storage and the reason is that non permanent storage is not comparable to carbon abatement options is not comparable to renewable energy or carbon free production technologies the non-permanent storage technologies what they give us is they give us an additional place to put our to to put carbon emissions so without that technology we only have the atmosphere there's only limited space in the atmosphere for for the 1.5 degree target for two degrees it's a bit bigger mm-hmm. with a leaky storage we have an additional an additional box to put these emissions in and we can do that with afforestation for example but it comes at an economic cost. And this cost is eternal because once we put the, we use this additional box, the storage box, then we have this permanent stream of, of re- emissions that are re-released from that, which have to be all as equal put back in there using the same technology. Speaking as an economist, now we have two streams of costs. We have the, the social cost of carbon that just comes from the CO2 in the atmosphere already. So those are permanent damages. But we also have uh, uh, costs that come from putting the leaked, the released emissions back into the box underground and the, putting them back into the stock of forests. That's what we do. This is the, our exercise. We compare these two streams of costs. And um, to do that, we introduce the social, the social cost of carbon removal. So the, the, larger the release rate is, the more leaky our additional boxes, the more expensive, you know, the higher the costs associated with this non-permanent mm. storage job. Yeah. So what, if you don't put it back, right? You you so you plant a forest, you take out 10 tons of CO2. Um and then next year half a ton leaks out, caught and goes to the atmosphere and now it start this starts to cause these this infinite stream of damages of climate damages mm. the, the year after that a little bit more another not half a ton but a little bit less leaks out of that forest and then year after year mm. the, the well, comes back to the atmosphere and, ca- and causes another stream of infinite damage yeah and what's the reason that you still and should say it's worth having some temporary storage is it because it's cheaper to do temporary storage now and replace it later than to permanently remove it now or than to avoid emissions you're talking about it reduces the short-run mitigation costs by increasing the so what are the things that go into this yes it's it's purely a comparison of costs we it's a very stylized assumption that we make we have um we say convex we assume convex climate damages that is if no co2 is in the atmosphere then emitting one ton doesn't cause so much damages if there's already lots of co2 in the atmosphere then Adding another ton, that's yeah, it's not linear. That's yeah. And we so we say we have nonlinear climate damages and we have nonlinear removal costs. And it's basically just a comparison of, of these options. And the, as I said, we're we, we look at the optimal outcome. So in the optimum, all these costs they are balanced. But it so what the exact mix is will then that depend on how what are the climate damages? Is will removing will removing the the ton of CO2 cause more economic costs than um, than having it in the atmosphere and causing climate damage. But you assume that it's cheaper to remove them than to avoid emissions. Yes. I think we don't make point assumptions. Yeah. If so so if if removing it is more expensive than avoiding, the model will always say avoid. The problem is it's sometimes cheaper to remove. So I would like to say something about peak warming. So uh, because I think you had several questions. Let's start with a simple world. So this offset just absorbs carbon uh, now, keeps it 50 years and re-injects. So 
nothing all else equal. So then the effect on peak warming, if the range, if peak warming is before 50 years, then the project reduces peak warming. Yeah. And if peak warming is after 50 years, the project has no effect on peak Correct. warming. Mm. Now, uh, things tend not to be equal. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you have an alternative uh, scenario where you do permanent storage. Now we're going to add one reasoning. Say, uh, imagine that fact that there is offsetting gives us more emissions now. So people say, yeah, since I'm now offsetting, now I can let, let's emit a bit more because things are, are more relaxed. Now, mm. if that happens, at the moment this carbon goes back in the atmosphere, you're hotter than without offset, not because of the offset, but because the offset increased emissions. Now, this can also go the other way. So imagine the opposite, so that we now develop an offsetting market the in, in companies start understanding that carbon uh, has a price, has a cost, emissions has a cost. And actually, so third world countries also uh, see carbon as, as a potential source of income. And, and, and somehow the climate negotiations become more easy. Now, because of your side effect, you get a cooler earth in 50 years because it was like some kind of oil in the negotiations. So I don't know which effect dominates uh, in our paper. It's just like all else equal. What? But then there is a last element, risk. So should there be a risk premium? Should we devalue these offset because of risk? So we have a standard formula where there is risk of failure of the project. That's fairly standard. It's a bit like increasing the discount rate formally. So actually, if, if your project has a given failure rate, we give you the formula on how to devalue your project. The value is obviously lower because you have a chance that it fails. Um, but uh, on an aggregate level, there's on, on once you've done this, there is no not necessarily an extra risk premium attached to it. Uh, so if you just take the expected value of uh, your project, since all these projects are. Mm, uh, these failures can compensate each other, provided mm -hmm. that you get the failure rate right. No, like uh, yeah, then but... that is fine. There is one exception if you think of institutional failure. So if you think, and actually that is, we give values for that because it's a reasonable assumption that in the future, bad institutional quality would give you both mm -hmm. higher emissions. We fail to 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 stay below two degrees and high failure rate of your uh, yeah. no, sure. project, then the value of your project should, there is a risk premium, yeah. a negative but risk premium. I think what I'm project. talking about is, is comparing, I tend to go from a bias perspective and also how companies view it and then what is a, a real offset? When can you say you're neutral? So the alternative scenario for me is like, either you buy permanent carbon removal, for example, direct air capture with underground storage, yeah. or you buy storage for 50 years where you have a contract for 50 years and the forest owner can cut it down if it's a forest, for example. Um, and even if you buy more than of the temporary, the alternative scenario, you don't, you have a decrease of peak warming because you're keeping the, the CO2 away. But if you have the temporary scenario, you will have higher warming if peak warming happens after 50 years. So it's those two scenarios that I'm comparing, not not the scenario where there's no offset at all. So it's like either you buy a temp several temporary or you buy one permanent. And that's my problem with temporary storage that released the CO2 well before peak warming. And you know, I think the most reasonable assumptions is that peak warming is not going to happen in 50 years. It's going to take a bit longer because of how our emission trajectory looks like. It's probably going to be more around the turn of the, the century or something like that. So you do increase risk if you equate short-term carbon removal with permanent. So if you're only worried about peak warming, you shouldn't do any offset that stops before the peak warming. So that is, uh, yeah, a mathematical truism. So that is, we treat, so let's say this our basic damage function is one that assumes that damages uh, quadratic in temperatures. Like the, the warmer it is, the more damage. Yeah, much worse to go from two to three degrees than from one to two. But that means that we care 
warming today. We care even more of warming when we were at two degrees, uh, but on any temperature gives us damages. And so it's not only about peak warming and the value, imagine peak warming comes after 50 years, the value uh, of your offset is based on reducing the more modest dam damages before peak warming. And so the value of your project goes quite up if you include peak warming, because at that point, damages are largest. There is another way to look at it. There are different dimensions to the damages. Because, and one is the warming speed matters. Warming speed matters because mm -hmm. people... For human societies, if it go, comes fast, we can't adapt that easily. But also for animals. So if warming goes fast, they can't move uh, northwards at the required speed, and then they, they get mm -hmm. yeah. And so if you think that some of the damages are related to warming speed, it seems quite likely that today we're at a fastest speed. We, we, we're at peak speed warming. Uh, speak, the speed of warming is proportional to the level of emissions. So if you think we're more or less at peak emissions, yeah, that's a, maybe a bit of an optimistic view. Uh, but then uh, these temporary projects are quite interesting because they reduce the speed at the highest speed. Uh, and then there is also some of the warming thing about uh, glacier melting. It's actually proportional to the, the duration of your warming. So it's warm, the integral of warming, so to say, like it's the sum of all warming over years. That's what's going to give you the melting, the, the amount of melting. No, I, I get it. Those are relatively similar to our the way we value it with this quadratic mm. function. Yeah. Not so big sure. warming, if you're really interested, only think about peak warming, you shouldn't, yeah, that the value of temporary offsets mm. is, 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 is not. Yeah, I think it would be, would, wouldn't be reasonable to say you only worry about that, but it, it does include some risks that are very hard to to, to quantify, like uh, in terms of tail risks of warming. So I guess that would that would be an aspect which makes it harder to, to equate because you, you have unknown parameters there. What exactly? We don't know what the the damage function of warming is, right? It's just assumptions, and it might be one much worse. And and reducing the peak has has that kind of value. So for, for me, it becomes a difference between do you have temporary storage that lasts well beyond peak, by peak warming? So pumping CO two to the bottom of the the oceans where it lasts for eight hundred years, for example, like it's much easier to make the case that that's easy, you can equate that to permanent storage than it is when it's fifty years and you have these kind of effects on. Yeah. So I think there is agreement among economists or, or climate scientists that peak warming is not the only worry. So we also worry for climate now, that warming now, we work speed. One discussion that we have within the community is, and it relates to your point, is, is warming, like the damage, is it quadratic or cubic? So that's this relationship, like how bad is two degrees compared to one so we would say or or, or, or so if it's what uh, we say now like two degrees it's four times worse than one mm -hmm. uh, it's quadratic uh, so uh, but maybe it's eight times worse yeah uh, so that's a video cubic selection mm -hmm. how fast does it do do we go into dangerous territory mm -hmm. the yeah that actually it's difficult to say if we look at empirical estimates of, of, of damages from, from heat and, and, and droughts, they sometimes find linear relationships. So, mm. so it does not increase, like it's just linear, proportional to yeah. temperature. That can't be, but they find like that's in the mm. data today. We know when we extrapolate, it should be like at some point adding a degree should become worse than what. Yeah, we yeah and you have things like that. The Gulf Stream turning but, at some point, etc. Yeah, know, this kind of things are also related to duration of heating. Yeah, no, so if you put heat later, I would still say there is a value. But then is this complicated thing about the damage function? We don't exactly know how, what's the shape, and how hmm. the damage is really realized. We but have. then you can say it's prudent to not equate per permanent emissions with. Temporary storage because of you don't you that this uncertainty. Like if we had perfect information, it would be easy. But since we don't have it, shouldn't it be more prudent to have long-term storage than to to equate short-term storage with, with perfect? Yeah, but but 
it's always the question like for a given budget what is best and so if you have of course like the permanent storage is always better than one ton the same ton temporary but you have a budget and you have a choice between one ton permanent or four tons now for 50 years mm. then our formula would say you avoid more yeah. more damages well expressed in welfare uh, with the four tons over 40 years uh, yeah given those but, yeah. yeah let me repeat that that it's a bit there is a lot of uncertainty these are like best estimates and then other people are, are, yeah. are disagree they say it should be a cubic damage function mm -hmm. yeah. and we give formula for that also it's not mm. our basics all right maybe maybe if i could chip in yeah, please feel free to run this again and comparing permanent and non-permanent storage uh, in terms of the physics how much co2 is in the atmosphere you can absolutely achieve the same physical effect with permanent and non-permanent storage say you store one ton permanently and it costs a thousand dollars then okay that that ton is gone forever uh if you take impermanent storage then and you use specifically this impermanent technology then you can also store that ton away forever only you might have lower costs right now but you commit yourself to infinitely paying mm. the cost of, of making sure that this ton stays underground yeah so no there's there's maybe another aspect since we're uh, already 45 minutes in that i would like to discuss and that's somehow the the perspective of firm and government of these world of incentivizing mm -hmm. carbon storage because we haven't talked about that yet and and so, robert your perspective is from from a firm's buyer's perspective now we maybe i could be some kind of an antagonist here and mm. i could in our paper we take the role of what should how could a government yeah. bring raise co companies to do the, the the socially right thing and to supply enough carbon removal and there are different options here we look at three different options the first is a government that just prices carbon emissions wherever they occur so They occur through coal-fired power plants, but they also occur when you have a non-permanent project mm. or the, the carbon, but then it, after 50 years, it's released. And at that point, the government should could say, well, we're also going to put a carbon tax on those emissions, and firms know that. And before they, they store away the carbon, they take into consideration that, well, after 50 years, I'm going to have to pay a carbon tax. This is increases my production costs. Maybe I'll then refrain from doing this impermanent CDR project and instead uh, choose a storage mm -hmm. technology. But the problem with that is it is really hard to monitor yeah. all these these sources. You can't... And will the company be around, etc.? That in a, Exactly, exactly. So that, that's even another uh, compounding problem. Now, what if we, if we use information that Frank and then Ben Groom provide or that we also come up with a formula like this that kind of puts a value on takes into account different information and puts a value on non-permanent storage because but we both agree that it does have a value it's not it's not the value of non-permanent storage is not zero it has a value it's not as good as permanent storage but it's somewhere in between now if you take that number and you uh, you say well we're going to tax carbon emissions but we're going to subsidize CDR only we're not going to pay the full we're not going to pay as much of a, as the carbon taxes and your dollars per ton of co2 we're going to pay a little bit less so we're going to discount that maybe only half as much and mm. then here it depends a bit on on how impermanent is it is, is this storage is it going to store the carbon only for five years or is it going to store it for 50 mm. or 500 years the longer it is the 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 more the government yeah. should subsidize it and this avoids so here you this avoids the problem of monitoring all yeah. these different projects and looking at all these point sources where just a little bit comes out of the, out of the woods here and out of the woods there uh, you could right at the beginning when somebody the company says we we have a, a nice impermanent nice but impermanent carbon storage project you could say okay here's here's your subsidy mm. and we're going to take into account the average a release rate that is yeah. associated with this technology and here you have the government basically guaranteeing the future replacement because they will have this policy in place also in 50 years 
And then, you know, they would incentivize someone to either do permanent carbon removal or a new uh, temporary carbon storage. So that would be, if you just have the company acting on their own and buying three tons of temporary storage, I have a problem with that because you don't have anyone replacing it and you have these kind of effects on, on peak temperature. Whereas in your scenario, it's a continuous system where it would be continuously replaced, basically. Uh, yes. This is, of course, also the assumption yeah. that there is the government and it is there forever and it, yeah. it always does yeah. the right thing. It, the, we have, uh, have a similar yeah, idea and with, you would also probably like it, Robert, uh, because it relates a bit to peak warming. So it's reflections on the fact that if we want to do like global net zero emissions, it's going to be very difficult to finance that. Mm. The current avoiding emissions, you can use a carbon tax that gives income to the government, but net zero requires a crazy amount of subsidies and maybe we yeah. don't have it. And here is now another idea. You could make companies liable for every ton they emit now, they're obliged to absorb a ton per future. And they're liable, maybe they have like 30 years respite. And then with our formula, you can calculate the damage of 30, 30 years rental space in the atmosphere. So the, 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 the warming that you cause for 30 years, and then the company would absorb it permanently when, when the technology is ripe and it's cheaper. Uh, uh, and, and so you set up a scheme where you, for those emissions that happen anyway, and it could be something that, that is applicable to countries where there is currently no clear emission reduction yep. policy, mm. uh, where companies become liable for their emissions. You pay interest on your carbon debt, essentially. Uh, yeah, because... That's part of the offsetting logic. So we're 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 definitely not reaching 1.5 without overshoot. That is over. Mm. And so the only way to end the century with at 1.5 degrees warming is with net negative emissions. And then you will need these negative emission storage. So of course, uh Permanent storage is, is the best. So if that is then available by then, that's good. Uh, but there is also the reforestation that we want to do. And, and, and that is, we'll, come and we'll need a finance mechanism. And, and so this carbon debt is, is, is a new thing people are starting to think about. And, and the government will use the income to... What the value, the cost of temporary injection in the atmosphere. And there, is, yeah. there, there is... There is Derek Lemoine speaking on the River Two podcast, right? You have a you have an episode, and I think uh, he he has a a working paper describing yeah, exactly. this mechanism. Mm -hmm. Although it this this financing scheme, it, you can understand it and it works with without distinguishing between without taking additionally into account impermanence. So this is this is also I think he first works with uh, explains it with permanent storage. But the yeah the problem exists. We have we need. You need public funds to incentivize yeah. carbon. Yeah, so that income, that interest that they pay on the carbon debt could be used by governments to finance forestation and to offset that yeah. temporary harm, for example, basically. For example. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's an interesting idea. It's similar to carbon take-back obligation, but building upon it, I guess, when adding this interest cost as well. A last element is monitoring. And and I I don't have like a super crystallized view on, on, on this. Like we have now these, these articles in the Guardian and, and like yeah. how good do these projects work? Uh, and so until now, we assumed that you could monitor these things. And, and, and I think I'm still hopeful that, that it's going to be possible. What we say in our paper, but, but actually it's, it's an ongoing discussion on how we should tackle this at some point, you want to avoid, like in the debt market, you want to avoid debt junk bonds. Like they're not a viable product. Mm -hmm. In the offsetting market, you uh, also want to avoid junk. Mm -hmm. We have in our formula a way of including risk of failure of the project. Yeah. Uh, but we, that applies to modest risk. So whenever you do nature-based solutions, there's always going to be some risk. It should be in, the, in your formula. You should anticipate this. There are 
for the standard failures like fires, you have buffers. I think they work, or the, there is empirical evidence that that this is can be reasonable. You observe fires, you observe bugs. That is, but on this additionality point, it's a trickier one. Yeah. So somehow, I think uh, the market should, yeah, find regulation like the mechanism that is not beyond a given level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a kind reduce the amount companies don't want to buy offsets if one chance out of three it yeah. turns out to be no sure yeah. but it's hard to estimate now of course but yeah. yeah but is your model available like as a google doc or excel or something that you could use it and uh, use different parameters uh, be published in uh, nature soon uh, but until then yeah we can't uh, nature doesn't allow a free uh, print yeah and yet we are discussing the paper, but no one can find it. Well, you can't find ah, it. So I think if you Enhanced Groom on the internet, yeah. you get a, a presentation at the Central Bank of San Francisco, Federal mm-hmm. Reserve of San Francisco, where, where everything is like, yeah, we have the yeah. paper. So it would be great to to actually use your, if you if you would then make it available as like an Excel sheet or something, I think it's a great tool to use your own parameters as well. To, to make these kind of calculations yeah. would be very I mean, useful. I think that is part of, of our publication. So okay. there will be an Excel sheet people can put in their parameters mm. and then calculate their... And that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. The Almost out of time. I think, Max, there is some... like to talk about, the, you know, welfare gains are different between generations. I don't know if you want to close with that or do you have anything else that you want to, to add before we, we leave? Yeah, I can uh, briefly uh, summarize what we find there. As and it relates to what I've said before on on the fact that you commit yourself to permanently taking back the the carbon that that is released from your impermanent storage space. So if you if you uh, store a ton of carbon right now permanently, then you right now you have relatively high costs. You uh, place the burden on, on current generations. And future generations, they have this infinite benefit, infinite occurring benefit that Frank spoke of. And now, if you do impermanent storage, it's much cheaper right now. And you can, you can either use that additional space that you have in the atmosphere to emit more carbon and get more benefits here, or you, you can uh, reduce climate damages right now. But future generations, if they have to keep that carbon in the ground, they have to do that forever. Now, depending on how much you value, future generations or the costs in the future, um, these costs are then, well, they occur f- until infinity. And yeah. Now, if you, you just value current generations more, if you have a high discount rate and the future is discounted a lot, then, and you do a lot of non-permanent storage right now, that's good for, for us, current, our generation, but then you have this, these, this massive stock of un, of of non permanent non permanently stored carbon, and these, the future generations they are burdened by yeah. that. In somehow similar, like they are would be have would have been burdened. They would be burdened by climate damages. That are yeah. Similar. I mean, you write that carbon removal with temporary storage has only very limited social benefits when t- discount rates are low, and also that optimal removal stocks are more sensitive to release dates rates than to discount rates. So, like, do you make a prescriptive statement in the paper around like what is a discount rate that should be used or is that up to the the reader well readers we give readers some information here because we we have we show a couple of tables where we compare different combinations of the release rate the measure of of impermanence and the discount rate that the readers might apply going from zero to seven percent so you can find we also provide a formula here that relates uh, the value of the social cost of carbon to the value of non-permanent storage in terms of release rate and the discount rate. And the higher the discount rate is, the more non-permanent storage I would do because I don't care about these future costs that come with putting it back. And the higher the discount, the higher the release rate is, the more costly this this putting back process will be so that will reduce the amount of non-permanent storage that it'll do mm. Mm. yeah makes sense all right any Good. any closing words or are we yeah in terms of paper availability 
I would just send you a link to the working paper version that we've just yeah. published. It's it's out as a working paper. We present we're going to present it at a couple of conferences and workshops this year. And so we don't we haven't we don't have a journal that we want to publish it or are going to publish it right now. Hmm. We'll then then follow after some more discussion. I see. Yeah, we'll put links in show notes. Yeah, so as can, closing word, I would say we should avoid eternal contracts. So many contracts are currently have this eternal logic, and we should recognize that nature-based solutions are, are likely known, not eternally additional, and then just adapt their value. They will be valuable. They will be competitive to other solutions, but they're not the same value as avoiding one emission because of Yeah. I think what my final consideration is also that regardless of the value put in temporary offsets, if you think you need permanent, you need to start buying them now for the cost to go down. So even if it would be optimal just to do temporary, you still need to put some money into the permanent high-tech solutions because otherwise they wouldn't drop in cost either. So like taking the long-term cost view rather than just what it costs today, rather than sort of the cumulative cost of all the tons you're going to remove with the permanent. Otherwise, it becomes too myopic. Oh, you we have a paper on the Grantham website that puts a value on this learning by doing or, or technological improvement by by using the technology and, and, and I very much agree. So, so this complicated technological solutions we should start now probably at low quantities because they're expensive but we need to go drive down the learning curve and make them cheaper by starting now yep that's how we did it with photovoltaics how we did it with batteries uh, and that's the way to go you had a paper on that you said yeah so a paper with simon Dietz, leo coppens on technological change, optimal use of technological, of yeah, abatement, technological change, random website. Great. We'll make sure to check that out. May I add Good. on, since Frank now ha also ha kind of answers your question that you sent us an email, what are some actions you hope to take? The action that, that I hope to take as a, that might be taken up as a result of the conclusions of our research is that uh, governments worldwide think about good policies and how to incentivize CDR and to take all these aspects that we're discussing here right now, that they take them into account and design smart pricing mechanisms or other policies so that we get the right amount of permanent and non-permanent CDR. Yeah, great. No, thanks for, for adding that as well. Okay, there's a lot more, of course, we can discuss, but uh, yeah, keeping it keeping it short. For, for the listeners and for, and for you as well. I think you probably have a lot of other things to do as well. But thank you very much for coming on today. Very interesting to do this deep dive and we're looking forward to reading more research. You, you, you're you very productive. So <laughs> we see more papers coming up all the time with, you, with your names on them. So that's going to be interesting to follow. And probably we'll have you back on this show as well. Thank you very much, Robert. Thanks a lot for inviting us. It was very interesting. Yeah. See you then later. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye.